We take on the biggest challenge in history. We save the world and we do it together. Do you think that would pull America together? I do. I don't. But I say let's do it anyway. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. We're also heard in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, and Columbus, Ohio on WGRN. Up in Palinville, New York on WLPP, Grand Rapids, WPRR. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, in Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com. Get well soon, Nicole. Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Coming up today shortly, it seems like it's been a while since we've had uh, David Dayan on this program, Desi Doyen. I think because it has been. He, of course, is one of our friends and a longtime financial reporter and author and now the executive editor of the American Prospect, which has done something pretty stunning. They have turned over their entire latest issue and their entire Prospect.org website with it today to articles that look at the feasibility and the need for a Green New Deal from pretty much every aspect with more than uh, 20 journalists and experts and a few celebrities like Senator Jay Inslee of Washington and uh, 350.org founder Bill McKibben, all ringing in with fascinating, smart and in-depth coverage on our ongoing climate emergency and what can and or should be done about it. Yes, it's really, really fascinating. I'm still plowing through it. And I would say that what I like the most about it is it is a window into the future into a heroic future where we actually can succeed, and here's a roadmap of how to do it. Some might call that a fantasy, Desi Doyen. They might call it that, but you know what? Everything has to start with figuring out how you get there. And uh, like I said, this this is the idea of how we make this work, how we solve climate change. David Dayan, who, who is not necessarily a, a, a green guy, by the way, it's not like he's an en- environmental activist or really journalist himself, but he, he may now be after putting out this landmark effort by the feisty, nonprofit, progressive uh, magazine that he's now taken over as executive editor. So I will look forward to that conversation shortly. Uh, very quickly, though. Setting aside whatever may happen in the ongoing impeachment of Donald J. Trump, 
Things are not going well for uh, congressional Republicans of late, no matter how much they may be doing their best to pretend otherwise. Got a number of uh, items along that line before we get to David, uh, including some news that is just breaking as we go to air. So let's start here. The Republican exodus from Congress continues this week with still more GOPers opting out of running for uh, before 2020 for some odd reason, which is weird because they keep telling us that impeachment is a disaster for Democrats. Citing redistricting in his home state, another House Republican has decided to not run for re-election in 2020 today. Congressman George Holding of North Carolina. He is the second GOPer this week to announce he's getting out while the getting is good. In a statement on Friday, Holding said that his district had become more Democratic on the congressional map, and that factored into his decision. His announcement makes good on a promise he made earlier this week that he would not run again if he did not think he could win, and that he would not encroach on a reliably Republican neighboring district, which is already held by a colleague of his. So this comes about because... Uh, North Carolina's congressional districts were recently ordered by the state Supreme Court after the uh, U.S. Supreme Court said that uh, they didn't want to have anything to do with this. So the state Supreme Court ordered that uh, the state be redrawn after years, a decade, in fact, of racial and partisan gerrymandering by Republicans in North Carolina who controlled the state legislature, drawn to ensure that even though the state is perhaps the most closely divided state in the entire nation, which, you know, went for uh, uh, Barack Obama in 2008, and then it went for Mitt Romney in 2012, and then it went for Donald Trump in 2016 at the same time that it elected a Democratic governor statewide, so incredibly closely divided. And yet, despite that, Republicans have redistricted the state, mapped the state, so that they were able to hold 10 of the state's 13 congressional seats for the entirety of the past decade. So now the state is being ordered redistrict, redistricted for uh, the 2020 elections, and Republicans are seeing the writing on the wall, at least holding is, in his district, uh, now that it will no longer be protected with a partisan gerrymander to ensure Republican politicians get to pick their own voters versus, you know, voters getting to pick their own politicians, whether they be Republicans, Democrats or or whoever they may choose. So he realized he couldn't win on a fair map. That's exactly right. So uh, he said, yes, the newly redrawn congressional districts were part of the reason I have decided to not seek reelection. He said in his announcement that he would not be running next year. I would say it's uh, probably the entire reason he's not running. Uh, under the new state maps, Holdings' second district will shift largely towards the Democrats. Daily Coast Elections calculates that uh, had th- these maps been in place in 2016, this particular district would have gone to Hillary Clinton by some 24 points in 2016. So I guess this guy doesn't even want to try to win there. Trump won uh, the previous version of this district by six points, according to Roll Call. Holding is now the 18th Republican to announce his or her retirement from congressman while not announcing a bid for another office uh, this election cycle. He is the second one this week. 
with more such announcements that, uh, well, are coming just as we go to air here. But before I get to that one, let's go to this the other one this week before holding. That was Congressman Tom Graves of Georgia, of the battleground state of Georgia. He announced he would not seek re-election uh, this coming term either. The House's GOP caucus has seen a wave of similar retirements over the past several months, most notably coming from Texas, Texas Republicans, and which, you know, Desi Doyen's old home state is quickly becoming a battleground state like it was when you used to live there. Oh, yeah. Many years ago. Gerrymandering has really messed up representation in Texas. So, uh, okay, so that's 18 for the moment who are uh, dropping out and not running. Uh, At least it was an hour or so ago, but that just changed before air today. It started this morning when the House Ethics Committee told Congressman Duncan Hunter, who had pleaded guilty in his criminal fraud case this week, that he needs to stop voting, at least in Congress. Uh, The committee chair, uh, Democrat Ted Deutsch, and ranking member Kenny Marchant, a Republican from Texas, sent a letter to Duncan Hunter laying out the House rule mandating that convicted lawmakers, quote, should refrain from voting on any question at a meeting of the House or of the committees of the House unless they have been exonerated or reelected after their conviction. Now, despite being indicted prior to last year's election, uh, along with his wife, on 60 counts, 6-0, 60 counts of fraud, conspiracy, campaign finance violations related to his use of campaign money for a whole bunch of personal stuff from the mundane, like buying groceries, to the extravagant, like vacations, to the appalling, like buying stuff from a country club pro shop for himself that he then billed as campaign contributions to veterans' charities. And by the way, Duncan Hunter is a veteran himself. Despite all of that and those indictments coming in last year, Republicans in the 50th Congressional District in California down in San Diego actually re-elected this guy last November as he complained that the entire thing, the, 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 all of those indictments by Trump's own Department of Justice was just a witch hunt. Sound familiar? Uh, also, New York Congressman Chris Collins, he was indicted last year as well on fraud and insider trading. He claimed the same thing. This is all just a witch hunt until he won re-election and then shortly thereafter pleaded guilty to the charges just as uh, Duncan Hunter did this week when he was allowed somehow, he was allowed to plead guilty to just one felony count rather than the 60 that he was charged with. Pretty good deal he got there. Hunter, in any event, was informed today by the bipartisan heads of the Ethics Committee that he should not vote in Congress anymore. They uh, said in this letter, the, uh, this uh, provision of House rules was promulgated to preserve public confidence in the legislative process when a sitting member of Congress has been convicted of serious crimes. They warned Hunter that while the rule is not binding, quote, you risk subjecting yourself to action by the committee if you violate it. That after Tuesday, when Hunter Uh, pleaded guilty in federal court to one count of conspiracy to steal campaign funds after he was indicted for using some $250,000 in campaign donations on personal luxuries 
including, by the way, extramarital affairs. So he uh, and his wife were charged for using money that he used to pay for his extramarital affairs. He's going to be sentenced uh, next March. He faces up to five years in prison. Well, as of this morning, he was said to be in D.C. discussing his next steps with Republican leadership. Well, we now know what that next step is as we go to air here. CBS News' Ed O'Keefe posted a brief statement from Hunter just before air, reading, quote, shortly after the holidays, I will resign from Congress. It has been an honor to serve the people of California's 50th district and I guess steal from them. And I greatly appreciate the trust that they have put in me over these last 11 years. The misplaced trust, I should say. Uh, why wait? Why not resign now? Uh, yes. Yeah, why not resign? Well, he's got to. I don't know why. He's just going to wait till the holidays. Keep getting that paycheck. Yeah. Okay, so that is 19 now from a caucus that is already down by about 33 or 35 at this point. I forget. 19 of those uh, Republicans are now leaving. And uh, as of this week, it's also not looking good for a potential 20th. This one from Kansas, Kansas, you remember uh, the home of Secretary of State Chris Kobach, the uh, voter fraud, uh, what, champion fraudster, uh, fraudster. Yeah, well, pretending he ran on two terms as Secretary of State, claiming that he was needed to stop voter fraud, to uh, stamp it out across the state of Kansas where it was running rampant. And he was actually even able to get hoax the uh, the state legislature into giving him powers to prosecute people for voter fraud. The only secretary of state in the country to have that. There's a new one in there now. And uh, he's also Republican, I believe, said, I don't want that power. So he's given that power back. That said, in Kansas, Kansas Congressman Steve Watkins According to the Topeka Capital Journal this week, uh, his signing of a Kansas voter registration form and two other election documents declaring his residential address was a UPS store in Topeka could, in fact, constitute felony voter fraud under federal law and election perjury under state statute, according to officials this week. Shawnee County, Kansas records show the first term Republican listed his official residence as 6021 Southwest 29th Street in Topeka. Well, that's nice. Sounds lovely. But it turns out that is a UPS store. When he signed a form to change his residency for voter registration purposes in August, he signed that as his address. He also signed that same address uh, on an application for a mail-in ballot in October, and he signed a document to complete early voting for the November elections, again using that address, a UPS store, which in Kansas is illegal, is actually voter fraud. It isn't clear where the congressman physically resided in Kansas, after August, according to the Capitol Journal, nor uh, what Topeka precinct he was actually legally qualified to be part of when he voted in November. By asserting his place of residence to be the UPS store, Watkins 
left the Topeka City Council's 5th District for the City Council's 8th District. He then cast the November ballot in the 8th District contest, which, by the way, was decided by just 13 votes. One of those was his. Illegally cast, it sounds like. Well, his chief of staff disagrees with you, Desiree. Mm. Jim Joyce said questions about the residency issue uh, posted by the Topeka Capital Journal uh, led to a staff review of the congressman's voter registration. And he said Watkins mistakenly portrayed his residence to be the UPS building. Apparently, he made that same mistake three different times on three different voting related forms, every time under penalty of perjury. Lots of mistakes there. A bipartisan contingent now of Kansas politicians uh, is uh, critical of Watkins and the way he's handled this. Several of those uh, Democrats and Republicans said they suspect Watkins acts rose to criminal conduct. State Rep. Blake Carpenter, who is a Republican, uh, was among lawmakers who called for an official investigation based on a sense that Watkins committed multiple felony offenses. He said, unless I'm mistaken, no one can live at a UPS store. It cannot be a place of residence. Carpenter, by the way, serves on the State House Elections Committee. Again, in a state where for the last near decade they have been lied to by their now disgraced Secretary of State, Chris Kobach, that there was rampant voter fraud going on, that they had to institute photo ID laws, that they had to institute proof of citizenship laws, uh, almost all of which, by the way, were struck down by the courts as unconstitutional. And in the bargain, Chris Kobach, uh, who represented himself in these cases, was actually slapped with uh, uh, fines by the judge for his, uh, for well, for lying in court about this case. Three Topeka, uh, uh, three documents were signed by Watkins and were all obtained by the Topeka Capital Journal showing that he used this residential address falsely. This, a guy who moved from Alaska in September 2017 to Kansas and somehow ended up being a, a congressman there without even having an apparent house a residency at this point. Katie Kupel, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Kansas, said state law necessitated that every person registering to vote in Kansas identify a residence. She said the state had allowed post office boxes to be used in some very rare instances in, for example, rural areas where not every home actually has a formal U.S. Postal Service address. She said the voter uh, registration makes very clear that individuals who provide false information could be subject to perjury. And now that's up to the local authorities to decide how they move forward with those situations because, well, the secretary of state no longer has the power to prosecute as uh, Chris Kobach did when he was there. Do you think that he would have prosecuted a sitting member of Congress? Kobach, had he? somehow I don't think he was going after Republicans in his Not searches. Republican members of Congress. Right. Let's see. This could constitute a uh, felony punishable by up to seven months in prison and a fine of $100,000. That's under state law. Under federal law, he could go to jail for five years. Uh, he could face a $10,000 fine. 
and you know we have seen people uh, be be charged and, and and penalized with much worse for doing much less than what this guy did and as a member of congress there is a presumption in in court that this guy would know what the laws are so he could be or at least he should be in trouble he ran by the way in 2018 uh, in a seven-candidate GOP primary, he claimed 26% of the vote, and then he defeated the Democratic candidate by just 1% of the vote in his particular district. His father contributed more than $1 million to his campaign, but apparently couldn't give him the money for you know to rent an apartment somewhere to at least pretend that he lived in the district. So right now, there is no declared Democratic candidate in the 2020 race for this particular uh, eastern Kansas district of the U.S. House. Well, WTF, Democrats, uh, get to it. This is a seat held by a voter fraud criminal dude who is said to have won last year by just 1%, and there's no Democratic challengers already lining up to take on this guy? A guy who they would be uh, running potentially on the same ballot with, guess who? Chris Kobach, who is now running for U.S. Senate after losing to a Democrat when he ran for governor in 2018. Yeah, he's running for the U.S. Senate. All told, by the way, Kobach uh, secured about 10 convictions in his eight years as Secretary of State, promising to break up this massive voter fraud wave that was going on in Kansas. He got 10 convictions, mostly from people who broke the law because they owned two different houses, like a house in Kansas and in a neighboring state like Colorado, and they voted during the same cycle in both places. And by the way, in most cases, they didn't know they were not allowed to, and they voted in elections that, you know, where they weren't, they didn't vote twice for president, for example. There was a local election here and a local election over there. Somehow that is still illegal. And Chris Kobach uh, fined these people, again, many of them Republicans. They were fined $5,000. So now that he's running for uh, U.S. Senate in Kansas, I'm sure he'll be demanding that uh, Congressman Watkins be locked up right away, right? So it's starting to feel a lot like 2006 again, at least to me, when one Republican after another after another is getting caught up in some criminal scandal or just quitting. But in 2006, Republicans still held a, held a majority in the U.S. House before they were then overtaken by a Democratic wave election that year. Now Republicans are already down 30-something seats. So next year could be interesting. They could become swamped at this point in November if these Republicans uh, keep up the good work. In any event, uh, getting swamped at the polls, that's one thing. Being swamped by rising seas and worsening storms is a completely different matter. And while Republicans might not uh, you know, like talking about this and they might prefer to ignore these realities, there are too many Democrats and, frankly, folks in the media who have been ignoring them as well. But not the American prospect, at least not anymore. The executive editor of The Prospect, David Dayen, joins us next to discuss their latest landmark issue devoted entirely to our climate crisis and whether a Green New Deal might actually be able to save us all. 
That's next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. that uh, Grateful Dead would be the theme song for the fossil fuel industry. <laughs> Don't let that deal go down. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Financial journalist David Dayen's piece last month at the American Prospect, where he is now the executive editor as well, is headlined, The Biggest Threat to Financial Stability is the Climate. It begins this way. Every few months, a news outlet will write a story heralding the next financial crisis with an assumed assuredness that we should all view as suspect. Predicting the next crisis has become a sport, he writes, one that typically magnifies risks and displays an unreasonable degree of certainty. But... If you had to choose a looming event that's most likely to produce a negative shock to the financial system, it would almost certainly be the climate emergency. Citing a recent report from Greg Gelzinis and Graham Steele, both former longtime members of the Senate Banking Committee, Dayan warns that huge risks to global financial stability will flow from a warming planet and the efforts to mitigate it, but that federal banking regulators have gone almost completely AWOL in monitoring or even assessing this legitimate threat. Worse, he writes, to the extent that any financial regulators in Washington are paying attention to the climate crisis, they're seeking to dismiss it. A subcommittee, for example, formed at the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, or CFTC, to look at climate-related market risk is stacked with fossil fuel industry representatives, he writes, including several executives from climate-polluting agribusiness, banks with significant carbon-intensive portfolios, and fossil fuel giants BP and ConocoPhillips. That's right. Those are the folks in Washington looking to help us all assess how much of a threat their own business and investments might be to the economy. I wonder if they'll be sounding the alarms that non-fossil fuel-connected advocates have been ringing for some time. The committee's clear intent, Dayan explains, is to examine the climate risks to polluting companies' core business, not from their polluting. But it's not just the threat to the economy represented by our worsening climate crisis. There is also a serious threat to the economy from, yes, taking action to try and correct it. The costs there are huge and enormously disruptive as well, at least to the world's current fossil fuel-centric economy. Our financial system seems to be whistling past a climate graveyard, Dayan warns. Financial firms are so deeply implicated in fossil fuels that any disruption, a physical one or a financial shock that reprices carbon assets, 
as climate advocates are warning must be done and must be done quickly to save civilization. Any such uh, financial shock will cause widespread suffering and potential catastrophe, and these risks could manifest at any time, he warns. That disturbing and damned if we do, damned if we don't warning from day in at the American Prospect was, as I noted, from a week or two ago. And it wasn't even included for reasons that I can't frankly explain from the uh, in the magazine's breathtaking new issue released on the web on Thursday at Prospect.org, devoted entirely to the politics and policy of a Green New Deal, featuring in-depth stories from more than 22 reporters, experts, and climate leaders in what I am uh, personally only just now cracking into and probably will still be through the holidays and perhaps beyond. So here to walk us through this landmark achievement with a bit of a preview is the aforementioned David Dayan, executive editor of The American Prospect. Oh, David, welcome back. And congratulations on this important new and long overdue issue of the magazine, sir. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I, I really uh, am proud of this achievement. Mm-hmm. Uh, we really saw a gap in, uh, you know, on the progressive left, we had this, you know, the Green New mm-hmm. Deal as a slogan has gotten us further than practically uh, any kind of climate initiative uh, mm-hmm. has in the previous uh, several years. However, we, we thought there was a gap in translating it into policy and showing that it's not only urgent, mm-hmm. but it's practical mm-hmm. and it's feasible and it, 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 it not only can be done, but it must be done. And, and so we set about to explain that, collecting the, the, the best experts and reporters that we could find uh, to really lay it out on every segment of the economy, mm-hmm. every uh, obstacle in its path, and how uh, it, we, can, we can actually get from point A to point B and, 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 and do this thing to limit temperature rise. And I want to step through uh, some of those pieces, but, uh, you know, I th- as I think you know, uh, David, Desi Doyen and I have been producing our Green News Report here, a uh, six-minute radio feature going on 11 years now. So we cover wow. this stuff pretty closely. Uh, And we've had many years of complaints about the corporate media not taking this issue with the with the gravity and and focus that it deserves. And I got to say, in all of these years that we've been covering this beat, this is really the first such comprehensive, serious attempt that I've seen to do exactly that. Was there one particular thing or one particular moment that led you to say we need to do this? Well, I think, uh, and thank you for that, but I, 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 I just think that we, we saw a gap in, in the marketplace. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. we are uh, a, a small, independent nonprofit. Mm-hmm. We don't have the resources of a, a New York Times or Washington Post, but what we can do is identify where there are these gaps, where there is a need for understanding, a need for reporting, and and then flood that zone, and uh, that's one thing that I've tried to do since I started six months ago at the Prospect, and uh, it definitely informed this project. Uh, mm. You know, that we're talking about our planet. Yeah. We, we don't have a choice but to make this work, and uh, we were genuinely relieved because when you start a project like this, you hope that well, I I wonder if. 
this is this is going to be practical. Mm-hmm. This is going to be something that can be accomplished. And you know, it was it was a pleasant kind of surprise when we went to Jeff Sachs uh, and and Marina Matsukato mm-hmm. and, and Mara Prentice and all these experts and said, "Can you actually get this done?" And they said, "Yeah." And I'll tell you why. <laughs> so so the, you know, it was genuinely rewarding to 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 see it all on paper mm-hmm. that uh, it's 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 laid out in a in a very I think easy to understand way that we have the technology on hand today to move to a carbon-free economy and that that carbon-free economy will not, you know, sink global GDP growth but actually enhance it and it can equalize our economy it can create jobs and especially in places uh, you know, uh, uh, benefiting those who were hardest hit by uh-huh. the toxicity of the environment to this point. Well, it may, it may benefit them, but it may not benefit those who were responsible for that toxicity, and that well, might obviously. be the holdup here. Uh, you know, as I uh, as I noted, I want to walk through some of these pieces, but you you mentioned in introducing it that uh, you wanted to examine whether and how you could practically accomplish a transformation of the planet to limit temperature rise. Uh, and whether the Green New Deal that, that was introduced by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ed Markey in the Senate, uh, whether it is realistic, practical, and necessary, sounds like, well, I think we all know that it is uh, necessary, but right. you're suggesting uh, through this report, uh, through these reports, right. that it is both realistic and practical? Absolutely. And we, we lay it out step by step. You know, uh, Ed Markey, mm-hmm. uh, we actually held a, a, a launch event mm-hmm. with Ed Markey uh, uh, on Capitol Hill, and he held it up and said, this is going to govern my thinking on, on this mm-hmm. from now on. This is the blueprint. Right. Uh, so, uh, we're, I mean, we were really honored that, that he would do that. Uh, but we go through it step by step, mm-hmm. and we break it down. So... Uh, one of the things I love is we, we show the role for cities. We have Joan Fitzgerald writing about how cities can contribute to a Green New Deal. We have Governor Jay Inslee writing about how states can and will contribute to, to a Green New Deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then one of my favorite parts is we have two stories by Nelson Lichtenstein and Kevin Baker, who are historians. Mm-hmm. And what they write about is they look back to the original New Deal, and Mm. they see what lessons can be drawn from that uh, over to the crisis that we have today. You know, the crisis of the Depression was a a powerful economic and social crisis. The crisis we have right now is a climate crisis. And how, what linkages are there between putting together a New Deal in the 1930s and a Green New Deal in the 2020s? And there actually are many. Number one, on the financing. Uh, Kevin Baker calls for sort of an updated version of the Reconstruction Finance Corporation to fund a Green New Deal uh, using public money, using Mm -hmm. public financing. Uh, uh, Nelson Lichtenstein has this wonderful piece taking you through the history of how, uh, you know, there was this element of participatory democracy Mm -hmm. within the original New Deal and how that can be applied to a Green New Deal to, to get people comfortable with this this idea. There's another article we have by Jeff Foe about uh, the, the, maybe the biggest political obstacle to a Green New Deal being 
the fact that faith in government has been whittled down to a, 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 a nub mm-hmm. in the Trump era and how you have to restore that before you can say, yeah, we're going to put together uh, you know, a $6 trillion-plus program uh, from the government to, to you know, uh, green the economy. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to come up with some rationale to say that government can get this done. And one way to do that is to start and build from the bottom up and involve people and engage people in the decision-making process that will make a Green deal, New Deal happen. Well, so, uh, you know, I, I think we've covered as many angles as we could hope to cover through these pieces, and I really have just scratched the surface here. With well, you. since you cited the uh, the, the historian's uh, take here from uh, Nelson Lichtenstein and, and Kevin Baker and, and looking back at the original New Deal, one of the things that strikes me about that, of course, is that that was uh, predicated on an already existing financial disaster that occurred. In other words, if anyone had tried to do a, 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 a new deal, FDR's new deal, you know, 10, 20 years earlier, I doubt it could have ever happened. Right. Are we looking at something similar here where we are going to have to actually wait for a crash, wait for the worst of the disaster before we actually uh, will find the political will to, to take action in this particular crisis? Well, I mean, I think I think uh, Desi would would tell you that the, that disaster is already here. <laughs> already yes, I am us. here, and I would definitely say the disaster is already here. And the effort to to combat climate change is actually, and I believe the addition will underscore this, but the effort to combat climate change is actually less expensive than the expected disasters we will see from right. climate change. Well, but right. let me. But you're, let me, you're talking about the cost of inaction. Well, and, yes. and that cost is very. And 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 I want to get to that because you speak to that specifically in your article in, in a moment. But sure. the yes, the environmental catastrophe is already here, but not the financial one, at least not yet. That you know precipitated the 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 original New Deal. I mean, are we going to have to wait for a you know a financial collapse? before we have the political will? Because right now, you know, all I hear is the economy is doing great. It's never better. Donald Trump right. is getting rid of regulations. We've got clean air, clean water, he tells us, and everything is just fine. So, Right. I mean, we're going to have to do the political hand-to-hand combat on that. And uh, I, I think it, it does start with understanding that government has a role to play, mm-hmm. uh, which, which, you know, that's you're talking about rolling back the Reagan revolution if you, if, if you have to start there. Right, mm-hmm. so this it's 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 going to take time, and it's time we don't need we don't really have, uh, but it's critical mm-hmm. to start there. I hope that it won't take a financial catastrophe to get us to the point where we need to do this. And you know, I mean, the good news is that we have presidential candidates that are on board and and understand the scope of the emergency and the need to to act quickly. Uh, and to use executive authority if need be, uh, you know, we, we have the ability to uh, change the power plant mix, to put regulations in, to restrict carbon from a command and control level uh, uh, through the Clean Air Act. And if that's what has to be done, that's, that's what we're going to, to need to do, right? Um, uh, it, it's, you know, Obviously, the election is, is going to be a huge part of that. Mm-hmm. And also, bottom-up activism is going to be a huge part of that. We have a piece in here by Marsha Brown, one of our writing fellows, about Extinction Rebellion. 
mm-hmm. which represents sort of a new stage, a new phase in climate activism, uh, that, that along with, you know, uh, the climate strikes, the youth climate strikes, Greta Thunberg and that, uh, which is really about direct action, taking it to the streets in a way that we haven't seen in the past. And Extinction Rebellion is doing this in a very unique way, and I think that if you're going to get the powers that be to understand the enormity of this without a financial crisis, it's going to take the largest and most powerful and important social movement since the civil rights movement to actually get that motivation and that energy going. And, and so uh, we do write about that as well in, in the package. And, and that's one of the things, I mean, aside from uh, what, you know, what the solutions are, presuming that there are uh, solutions that could still be implemented to uh, mitigate the worst of effects of the, the crisis that we are already in, uh, you know, the two big hurdles seem to be uh, the financial hurdles. And you're saying that, uh, well, we'll talk about that in a second, actually. And the political hurdles. And uh, Marsha Brown uh, writes about Extinction Rebellion. Uh, I see that Jeff Foe is writing, will Americans support a big green government? That, to me, yeah. uh, what what's the answer there? Uh, will <laughs> Americans support this? I know that it might take an Extinction Rebellion type of, uh, you know, up rising to force it but what were your uh, writers finding as far as whether right. this is even i guess well, politically feasible what i think because it is, sure doesn't feel like it david right no i i uh, your your frustration and your skepticism is is warranted frankly uh what i think we we set out to do here is is to look at this thing not as a slogan but as a as as a practical policy and it's it's easier to then go out to the public and say, support this thing, and here, here's what it, will, will it, what it will actually accomplish, if you have that blueprint, rather than if you uh, have a slogan and, and, and there's not a lot of meat on the bones and it can be distorted and, 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 mm-hmm. and, and, and demonized in, in various ways. Right. Uh, so we set out to create a, a, a fact basis for the, the idea that a Green New Deal is realistic and, 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 and urgent and, and, and reasonable and feasible. Oh. The, the politics, yeah. and, you know, it, it, this is always going to be what this always runs up against. The politics are going to be really darn hard on this. Uh, and we're going to have to renew sort of the idea of government as, as uh, 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 part of the solution rather than part of the problem, as, uh, as, as Ronald Reagan depicted. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't have, if I had all the answers to that, then I think we'd be in a much better position. But I think it starts with that educational aspect, uh, that, that to, to build out the idea that, yeah, we can do this, and to give people ammunition mm-hmm. when they're in these debates. That, uh, you know, instead mm-hmm. of saying, we, we have to combat climate change, uh, and, and we have to do it now, they can say, well, look, in the American prospect, what I read is that, that we can do this for less than 1% of GDP globally, and uh, it will have this huge return on our investment. It will reduce corporate power. It will increase uh, uh, participatory democracy. It will help those who have been most affected by this emergency and by this crisis, and we can, we can get this done. And we, ha- mm-hmm. we have the capabilities. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think... 
I think the issue puts us in a better position to fight on the politics. You and your uh, optimism. What happened to you, David Dayan? <laughs> Let's take a quick break here. Speaking with David Dayan, executive editor of The American Prospect, about his uh, surprisingly hopeful special issue of The Prospect dedicated to the Green New Deal. Uh, quick break, and we're back with more because I want to ask him about uh, some of these uh, financial numbers that he points out uh, in his own uh, contribution to all of this. After a quick break, I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Five major corporations now control more than 80% of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. It's not about the money, money, money. We don't it need is. your money, money, money. We do. We just want to make the world Forget about the price tag. We can't forget about the price tag. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. To many, the price tag seems to be the only thing that matters. I'm speaking with David Dayan, the executive editor of The American Prospect and the author of 2016's Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud. And so he knows uh, quite a bit about, you know, global financial collapse. And to that end, uh, he wrote an interesting article uh, in The American Prospect in advance of their special issue just out this week on uh, on the Green New Deal, which uh, includes uh, reports from some 22 reporters and experts and climate leaders looking at the Green New Deal and whether it is actually realistic, practical uh, and necessary. And I think the answer he's uh, explained to us in the previous segment is uh, yes, yes and yes. Right. Uh, and with all of that in mind, uh, David, your article on uh, on uh, the climate's threat to global financial stability uh, was not quite as optimistic as as uh, the rest of this. Uh, well, I, I mean, what I would say yeah. is that it it throws the subject into relief. I mm-hmm. mean, there's there's there are all these claims that you know this is a boiling frog problem mm-hmm. that uh, it's it, it it's just going to sneak up on us. And we're not uh, going to realize that we're in this trouble because the the costs are far into the future. And I, I, I think what uh, that uh, the article you describe uh, is talking about is that the costs are actually here, and uh, and now we have this almost vice grip situation where there are costs to inaction, uh, and there are now costs to action. Yeah, uh, because. Uh, and, and we can talk about that, but it's basically because the, the financial regulatory apparatus mm-hmm. has, has not paid attention to this issue for so long that they now have a financial system that is embedded with uh, carbon assets to such a degree that changing the mix of those assets is going to cause financial shock. And, uh, and you make the point that, uh, you make actually a lot of disturbing points, I find, <laughs> in this article, uh, but that there are 
you know, some efforts by uh, central banks in other nations to That's sort right. of work together to figure out the cost of transitioning away from a, uh, a petro-based economy. Right. Uh, but our own central bank, the Federal Reserve, arguably the most important globally, is not even a member of that global working group. That's right. And that I guess we have no such official inquiry of our government even going on right now to look at what these uh, what these costs are likely to be. That's that's the serious problem here is that the the Federal Reserve has not taken this seriously. All of our bank regulators pretty much have not taken this seriously. Uh, Fed Chair Jerome Powell mm-hmm. at a hearing essentially said uh, that Congress has given that authority to other agencies. He just basically begged mm-hmm. off the question entirely. And uh, that, that is a serious, serious problem. The Fed and, by extension, you know, the other banking regulators are supposed to look at the safety and soundness of the U.S. and global financial system. Mm-hmm. And there's no question that significant temperature rise is going to cause uh, uh, serious weather events, that will affect, uh, 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 you know, uh, major financial assets, anything on the coast, mm-hmm. uh, uh, to a significant degree on the one side, and that if you reprice carbon, you're going to have stranded assets in the trillions and trillions of dollars right. in the portfolios of major money center banks uh, on the other side. And so for the Federal Reserve to beg off this, this question and say that other agencies have it covered, it just courts disaster is what it does. It, it courts disaster not unlike uh, what we saw that you write about in your book, Chain of Title, what we saw in the uh, 2008 uh, global financial meltdown. But here you've got, uh, well, as you underscore, you got sort of tens of trillions of dollars conservatively that it will cost. Uh, that's sort of the cost of not taking action before we hit the point of no return in this matter. Uh, And then, as well, paradoxically, there's the cost of actually taking action. That would also cost tens of trillions of dollars. It kind of seems like we're screwed either way, David. Uh, Damned if we do, damned if we don't. Which are we we most or least damned, I guess, is the question (laughs) at this point. The point is that uh, these other central banks have have figured this out, and they have this network for greening the financial system Mm -hmm. to do, you know, I mean, because... You could see this trillions of dollars, which is a big number, over a very long time horizon, over 30 years, 40 years. And if you, if you work now to auction off these assets, to move and transition the economy and, and sort of get this priced in to the financial system, there is a way to do this gradually such that uh, it does not cause like an immediate near-term shock where there are fire sales and, 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 and people going crazy. Uh, the, the problem is the lack of attention to the subject on the part of U.S. regulators. Mm-hmm. And there is a global network they could plug into very easily mm. and, and, and get this going. Uh, but, you know, financial firms aren't going to do it by themselves, right? Uh, they need that push Apparently, from the regulators yeah. to force them into this position, even though it's their, it's their keisters on the line, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if... If, if we start changing the, the, the mix of, of energy assets and, you know, J.P. Morgan and Bank of America have all these fossil fuel assets on their books, they're the ones who are going to be screwed, right? So mm-hmm. they should want to, to work constructively to figure out a way 
to, to you know, get this ticking time bomb diffused. But, so they're, but they're not. I mean, this is why, why you no. call it whistling past the climate it's graveyard. It's short-term thinking. It's well, short-term thinking that says, you know, uh, in, in, the, in the financial crisis, there was this uh, acronym, IBG-YBG. It means I'll be gone, you'll be gone. <laughs> and uh, what it means is that when this Ooh. all blows up, we're, we'll, be, we'll be, you know, yeah. six feet under and who cares. So that's kind of the thinking that's going on right now with respect to climate and the financial system, what, and that has to change. What could or or should financial regulators actually be doing here uh, in the U.S. if they were addressing this with the seriousness uh, that it deserves? Sure. I mean, the first thing is 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 actually figuring out where where the risks are. Like the the, the Securities and Exchange Commission could require all public companies to detail their financial risks from climate change. They, they could say, you know, uh, the, the banking regulators could essentially give a stress test mm-hmm. and say, okay, if carbon went, price went to this level, what would your portfolios look like? And how could you, you know, mm-hmm. come back from that? And once you do those kinds of actions, then presumably the system will figure out, uh, well, we better get on the move and, mm. and, and try to figure this out. Uh, financial companies could be supervised uh, over their climate preparedness. That could be part of, of the examination system. They could force companies who have higher you know, carbon-sensitive assets that have large portfolios of fossil fuel uh, assets, they, should, they could force them to carry more capital to absorb losses so that the taxpayers don't have to absorb them. So there are a lot of things that can be done. Uh, it's just political will and understanding that this is a major threat. Is, is it something that you, you see, presuming Democrats can win back the White House next year, and that's a pretty big presumption at the moment, sure. but taking that presumption, is this something that you see Democrats, uh, do, do you have confidence that Democrats will do exactly this? I mean, we waited to have these stress tests for the banks, you know, until after the uh, catastrophe happened. Do you uh, suspect they will add stress tests on their, uh, you know, carbon-related investments to uh, their oversight? I think that was the point that uh, Graham Steele, who is a former Senate Banking Committee Mm -hmm. uh, staffer with uh, Sherrod Brown, Mm -hmm. and Greg Gilzinas, who worked for Jack Reed uh, and is now at the Center for American Progress. So this isn't coming from the loony left, right? Right. This is is from the center. Right. Um, That's why they wrote this thing. Uh, They they feel that these... Nominees are going to be have to uh, going to have to be held to this. This you know this is going to have to be part of the mix of nominating and confirming the next financial regulators. What are you going to do on climate? Uh, and and if if this issue can be sort of raised in the public consciousness now, it prepares people for for 2020 and beyond. If a Democrat gets in the White House, that this has to be part of a comprehensive. Uh, Green New Deal kind of agenda mm-hmm. uh, that that you you can't just change the uh, you know transform the energy mix of the country and leave it at that. You're going to have to pay attention to these financial matters. I'll point folks to your uh, article, David Dan, at the American Prospect uh, headline: "The Biggest Threat to Financial Stability Is the Climate." Where you you also include a you know a scenario that sounds very much like. You know, the way AIG fell apart uh, and how that uh, affected the entire economy when things went south during the uh, global recession of 2008. 
uh, that we should be looking at in advance. So when you go to the American Prospect to uh, prospect.org to look up that article, you will also find this uh, extraordinary issue on uh, the Green New Deal with some 20 different articles the entire website right now over there at Prospect is dedicated to this, mm-hmm. uh, thanks to, uh, well... And, and, yeah. and by the way, even after that, even after we change our homepage, you can find everything at prospect.org slash Green New Deal. That's all one word. Very prospect. good. Prospect.org slash Green New Deal, and you can find every single article that is in this special section. Last uh, question for you, David. Uh, what is your hope that Americans will take away from this uh, special green prospect issue? Well, uh, I hope that they, they can see the Green New Deal as a policy, as, as not just you know a pie-in-the-sky kind of wish and a hope, that a practical, reasonable, realistic, and urgent policy that uh, it, this is not just a blueprint for something we can do. It's, for, it's a blueprint for something we have to do. And uh, so uh, hopefully the takeaway is that we, we now understand what needs to be done and what can be accomplished. Now let's go out and do it. That's the unusually hopeful and optimistic David Dayen, uh, executive editor of The American Prospect, uh, which, by the way, is a nonprofit organization. Uh, it relies on reader support to continue this important work. Please consider supporting their efforts with a subscription this year. Get one, of your, get one for your crazy MAGA uncle just to drive him crazy. I suspect, David, you don't care. They, they, they need the support if we're, if we're to keep you know, independent, important journalism like this going right now at perhaps the most perilous moment we've ever seen in uh, in both this country and this industry. So please consider that. Uh, David Dan, always uh, great to have you here. You can find his work, of course, at prospect.org. You can follow them on the Twitters at The Prospect. And you can send your complaints straight to David on the Twitters at D. Dayan. Thank you, brother. Really great to talk to you again, my friend. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay, we got to get out. Thank yes. you very much to our producer, Desi Doyen. I, I think I know what you're going to be doing over Christmas. Oh, yes. Reading The American Prospect. All of it. Also, uh, thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. All of that made possible by those of you who support our work at bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, you'll find me at the Brad Blog. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.